I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. In this episode, I sit down with public historian Justin Clark. If you're a fan of Muckraker Media, you probably heard him on the latest episode of Plato's Cave, which I consider mandatory listening for anyone who thinks. As a matter of fact, it's linked below in the show notes, so if you haven't, I would highly suggest listening to that before you check out this episode. Or perhaps you've read one of his blog articles on the Muckraker site. Regardless, this episode is one I'll go back and listen to, as there is just so much to unpack and get out of Justin's perspective and analysis. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did, and with that, on with the show. Through the miracle of modern technology, I am sitting across from Justin Clark in, a, in another time zone. Th- thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to have you on the show because I thought you could help me work through some questions I've been mauling over. But but there's only I guess there's only one concern, and it's that you're what some people might consider radical. Yes. Why, why do you think that might be the case? So... Um, I think the big reason for that is because I I um, identify as a socialist. So, so for me, I believe in a political and economic system in which um, the workers own and control and decide the means of production. So my my intellectual influences are of the socialist tradition, you know, sort of from American socialist tradition of people like Eugene Victor Debs. And Norman Thomas of the 20th century, up to Bernie Sanders today, who identifies as a democratic socialist, as do I. And of course, Marx, um, Marx, Engels, and Lenin. So uh, my politics are informed by a deep commitment to advocating for the working class. And I very I define the working class very broadly. I'm not necessarily mean people who um, who only work with like shovels or hammers, although people who work with shovels and hammers are incredibly important to our society and should be just as, as lauded for their work as anyone else. Um, because what I do is I don't work with, um, shovels or hammers. I work with words. Uh, I'm a public historian, I'm a writer, but at the end of the day, like I exchange my labor for a wage. I don't own the means of production. I don't control the means of production. I don't have any real say over whether or not, um, I'm employed, like I, I, I continue to be employed. So working class to me is a very broad category. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, my politics are radical. Um, I've always pretty much had radical political positions for most of my life. I've always advocated for things like, um, legalizing marijuana, decriminalizing all drugs, um, have, uh, drug offenses go through the civil court system and do rehabilitation rather than just prison. Um, I believe in legalizing prostitution. Uh, I'm an advocate for nuclear power. There's all kinds of stuff where I don't really fit into a neat box. And yeah. so, and so, yeah, I would say, uh, not only would people consider me a radical, I consider myself one too. Mm-hmm. Well, it, that, that's kind of interesting because when you, when you identify yourself as a socialist, many in the popular culture would consider that being a socialist, almost this un-American thing. But yet at the same time, socialism is a very American tradition. 
Absolutely. So I, as I mentioned on another podcast recently, to me, socialism is as American as apple pie. Mm -hmm. um, the first real socialist thinker who had an impact on the history of America, at least from the revolution revolutionary period on, was Thomas Paine. Um, who a lot of people know for writing Common Sense. But he also wrote um, a pamphlet called Agrarian Justice, um, which contains one of my favorite quotes ever, um, call, uh, where he says, an army of principles can penetrate where an army of soldiers cannot. Um, and in, in Agrarian Justice, he advocates for what we would sort of call today um, Social Security or universal yeah. basic income. Um, basically that the surplus of grain that would be developed on a small farm that you could sort of collectively control um, the means of that production of smaller farms together and then use that surplus to give people a certain minimum amount um, for them to subsist on. And so that's what he advocated for in that tradition. Um, some of the agrarian democracy of Thomas Jefferson, I think, also has sort of socialistic t overtones in the sense that he's advocating for sort of small um, farms and small uh, institutions that would sort of collectively work together. But socialism in America really starts taking off in the late uh, – mid to late 19th century um, with uh, a whole f f host of different people and the beginning of labor unions and particularly um, a guy named Eugene Victor Debs. And Eugene Victor Debs, who is from Terre Haute, Indiana, um, his home his hometown is about two hours or an hour and a half south of where I'm at right now in Indianapolis. Um, he uh, – was originally a state senator here in Indiana, um, advocated for um, uh, basically um, uh, unemployment compensation for those um, who were affected by railroad um, accidents. And that was like the major thing he pushed while he was in the state Senate. Wouldn't pass during his time, would pass in the 1890s. Um, but then he became sort of radicalized and he was um, he was a, a very uh, he had created a couple different unions. Um, and uh, he was instrumental in founding a very large union, which still exists today, called the Industrial Workers of the World, or the IWW, yeah. also known colloquially as the Wobblies. Um, and he also ran for president multiple times under the Socialist Party banner, starting in um, in the 1900 up until 1920. And in 1920, he gained nearly a million votes for the presidential uh, in the presidential campaign while being imprisoned for protesting against World War One, American involvement in World mm -hmm. War One. Then in the 1930s, you have somebody like Norman Thomas. Norman Thomas was the Socialist Party candidate during sort of the, the 20s and 30s, and he was one of the sort of progenitors of what would we sort of know today as the New Deal. He advocated a lot of what Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, actually got done, which was sort of worker um, protections, um, labor union rights, um, uh, advocation against uh, child labor, and particularly Social Security. And Norman Thomas was so committed to his views and saw Roosevelt as sort of perverting them for his own gains that Norman Thomas was um, uh, pithily once said, he goes, um, he's, uh, he's putting away my, <laughs> he's putting away my uh, campaign platform in a box. Um, and so you have Norman Thomas. And then of course, in the 1930s as well, you have the, Com the American Communist Party, which is a little bit more of a complicated story because at the time, the American Communist Party, of the 1930s was very much under the influence of Stalinism and, 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 
during this, the period of the Soviet Union at that time. But the leader, the presidential candidate for the Communist Party was a guy named Earl Browner who again, like Thomas, actually advocated for all of those things. He believed in collectivizing the farms. He believed in, um, in uh, you know, unemployment compensation. He believed in, in maintaining a sort of federal workforce um, for people who were unemployed. And the big thing that he did in the 1930s when he ran um, was that his vice presidential candidate was a guy named John W. Ford, who was an African-American. And so he was the he was an African-American running for vice president in 1936. And in their 1936 Communist Party platform, they advocated for civil rights. So this is 30 years before the Civil yeah. Rights Act of, of 1964, 28 years. So a lot of the New Deal reforms of the 1930s were directly influenced by the pressure that was put on the Roosevelt administration by the communists, the socialists, the trade unionists, the anarchists. And so in my estimation, now we sort of get up to today where we're seeing a resurgence of that kind of politics in people um, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman from New York, a AOC, obviously the Bernie Sanders campaign, which is probably the most successful uh, presidential campaign for socialist since Debs or since Norman Thomas. So we're seeing a resurgence of that kind of style of politics, and I think that's a very good thing for, for American political culture. Yeah, so the information regarding these socialist candidates and figures and agendas are not – it's not like they're particularly hard to find. Are they? I mean you could pretty much pick up a book and there's tons of information about the socialist history of the United States. So what is it that it seems – so foreign to Americans that they somehow separate this very, like you said, it's a very American thing into being this very foreign thing. I mean, when did when does that start that we look at socialism as something that is un-American? I think a lot of that starts um, during uh, the second half of the Woodrow Wilson presidency. So you have, at that time, Americans become involved in World War One. We we go in, we get involved in World War One in 1917, and from 1917 well into the early 1920s, you have in this country what's called the first Red Scare, where government agents, particularly his attorney general um, and the postmaster general, and a lot of other folks within the federal government, basically did a clampdown on radical political activity. So this is where you start seeing this uh, this sort of amalgamation of you know people who are socialists and people who are communists and all of this. They sort of get lumped together into this sort of very public smear campaign against them, and they sort of get lumped in with the anarchists. Um, and, and the anarchist because. In the early 20th century, anarchists had done um, some pretty violent things. Um, in particular, you have. You have the Wall Street bombing. You have um, the near assassination of Carnegie Steel's Henry Frick by Alexander Berkman. You have a lot of you, obviously you have the assassination of um, William McKinley by so, uh, by an anarchist named Anton uh, Leon Chugash. Um, so you have all of that element. So that's going on 20 years, about 15, 20 years before. But well into the 19, late 19-teens and, and 1920s, you see a lot more of it being clamped down. A lot of it is also in response to the emergence of the Soviet Union. So you have the Bolshevik Revolution that happens in 1917. 
And when that happens, you have a period of what's called the Russian Civil War. We have the White Army versus the Red Army. The Red Army is, of course, the army of, of Lenin and Trotsky and the Bolsheviks. And the White Army is an army of um, sort of uh, counter-revolutionary forces, um, some of which were actually were actually in the United States. One fact that the economist Richard Wolf always makes when he's talking about the Cold War is that only one country, there was only one time where one country invaded and it wasn't the Soviet Union invading the United States. It was the United States invading the Soviet Union to stop it. And that was happening during the Russian Civil War. So at the time, when you see the sort of emergence of radical politics in the Soviet Union and people seeing it as sort of a beacon of hope, um, uh, in particularly Debs in prison, was reading about the Bolshevik Revolution and sort of sympathized with Lenin and with what the Bolsheviks were trying to do in Russia. So you see this connection with sort of radical political activity mixed with this foreign revolution that happens halfway across the world that seems very scary to people because what the Bolsheviks did was they basically overthrew a very American-style constitutional republic in the Mensheviks, um, which was led by a guy named Kerensky. So you had sort of two revolutions in 1917. You have the spring and the fall. The spring revolution is when the czar and the czarist regime, the sort of feudal peasant system that Russia had, it gets upended in the spring of 1917 um, and is replaced with sort of constitutional republic. And then in the fall of 1917, um, after months and months and months of, of Lenin and the Bolsheviks making the argument for actually – moving beyond it and, and advocating for a socialist government, um, you see then you have the revolution where they sort of upend that system. And so because of that, a lot of it is seen as anti-democratic. The other thing that happens too, and by the time you get into the 1930s is you have the rise of Joseph Stalin. And Stalin is a counter-revolutionary figure in the Soviet Union because Lenin himself never wanted Stalin to become the leader of the Soviet Union. And in fact, one of his last letters he wrote before he died in 1924 was to get Stalin out of the party um, because he, he knew that Stalin would consolidate power and purge people who were connected to the original Bolshevik revolution of Lenin and Trotsky, which is exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and you so you saw the bureaucratization, the authoritarianism, the repression that eventually starts to become more extreme under the Stalinist period, which a lot of Americans wouldn't know about until the 1950s um, when uh, Nikita Khrushchev became the premier of the Soviet Union and basically publicly made uh, and made and made public Stalin's crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so American communists were, you know, in the 1930s into the 1940s, were doing a lot of apologetics for Stalin. So people sort of saw that as being um, anti-democratic, anti-freedom, mm-hmm. and this and that and the other. So I think the sort of the two red scares that happen, the one that happens right towards the end of World War One and Americans' involvement in it into the early 1920s, and then the sort of second red scare that happens post-World War II into the 1950s and McCarthyism yeah. really, I think, really um, destroyed destroys the sort of the the goodwill that socialism or sort of populist or left politics had sort of gained um, throughout the mid to late 19th into the early 20th century. But yet at the same time, many of our current social programs in the U.S. have their origin in these early American socialist figures. Yep. Which I think brings me to the next point I wanted to make that you recently put out an article about 
Isaac Asimov. And I know these two don't really seem like they would connect, but there, there's a quote in there that stuck out to me from Asimov, and it runs like this. He said, quote, there was a cult of ignorance in the United States, and there always has been. The strain of anti-intellectualism has been a constant thread winding its way through our political and cultural life, nurtured by the false notion that democracy means that my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. Where, where do you see the clearest examples of America's anti-intellectualism today. And I, I, th I think we kind of, in hindsight, illustrated some of that with this notion that socialism is this anti-American thing, yet there is, it's much more complicated than that. And I think like the oversimplification of that issue is just one example of what I think Asimov is getting at here. But do you see more examples or do you just disagree with what I said out right there? I'm, I'm curious. No, I, I agree with you. And and I would say that for me, what, what Isaac, Isaac Asimov is sort of doing is he's sort of making the argument, especially the whole democracy means that my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. What he's trying to make a point of is saying that the point of democracy is not to sort of level everything to the point where everybody just gets to believe what they want to believe and whatever. What democracy is really about is advocating for the application and expansion, expansion and application of knowledge um, for the improvement of human life. And, and, and so that's really what he's going for. And in that regard, there's a big direct tie to sort of what he's advocating for and what um, socialism would argue for. Now, Asimov was not a socialist. I, I, I actively say in the article he sort of described himself mm -hmm. as a social democrat. I would say Asimov's politics were not sort of left socialist. They were more left liberal. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of common ground between Asimov and I. And in terms of like what's going on with American culture, for me, it's about people really – People have a real now in, in our culture, especially over the last 40, 50 years, has been a real distrust in institutions. People mm -hmm. don't trust the presidency. People don't trust Congress. People don't trust um, – they don't trust uh, uh, hospitals. They don't trust – they don't trust the media. They, and and what I would say as a radical is I would say like yes and no. Like yes, I think the distrust that Americans have about the institutions, a lot of that is really, really justified, right? So for the last 40, 50, 60 years, we've been lied into multiple um, armed conflicts that have led to the deaths of thousands of American soldiers and millions of people just around the world. I'm specifically talking about Vietnam. I'm talking about um, Reagan's um, funding of the fascist death squads in South America during the 1980s. Obviously, um, the war on terror and the war in Iraq, all of these are sort of failures by the American um, foreign policy elite, the people who are supposed to be the best and brightest, the smartest people in the room. Mm -hmm. And so when we're constantly being lied to and we're constantly being told, oh, this is the best thing for us when it actually isn't, and these people use the veneer of, of intellectual credentials to do it, it really brings to – it really creates an environment where people are very distrustful of people who went to college um, or people who, um, who sort of rose up the meritocracy in America. I think the other thing, too, is that in this country, we've seen a real breakdown in um, social cohesion. And I think a good a good reason for that is sort of the emergence of the economic doctrine we live under, which is neoliberalism. Neoliberalism as a philosophy is essentially that the market should – we should leave everything to the market. That um, And that goes back to uh, former uh, UK Prime Minister uh, Margaret Thatcher's uh, quote um, – 
there is no such thing as society. There are only individuals. Um, and so that's kind of what neoliberalism argues for people. And so it's no surprise that we've seen this huge sort of social breakdown over the last 40, 50 years because we've created a world system in which everything is based on market transactions. Everything is based on money and profit. And so people don't trust the institutions anymore because they're not actively involved in them anymore. So you have mm-hmm. less people who belong to brotherhood organizations, so less people belong to the Elks or the Moose or the, the Eagles or the FOP. Um, pe- people go to church less often. Um, people don't have meaningful relationships in the way that maybe they did 50, 60 years ago. Um, and so the social breakdown sort of mixes with the skepticism. And I think healthy skepticism about institutions and leaders and power is is good. My politics is based on that. The real problem is is that it can get you into territory where instead of being actively critical and using critical thinking, what you're actually doing is being sort of a cynical conspiracy theorist, and 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 so you can sort of be sold any kind of any kind of nonsense that can be sold at you. So I think with Americans, it's a real lack of critical thinking, and it's a failure of our educational system, and it's a failure of our institutions. Yeah, I recently I uh, just watched these clips from the the American uh, not American, the Michigan State House protests. Do you think that kind of display is in line with what Asimov was arguing there? This I, this this inherent skepticism breaks down into this this cult of ignorance where one of the speakers at this event was he was asking the audience, where do they get this six feet from? I think they pulled it from their rears is an actual quote. And it's this, this active denial of science, this active anti-intellectualism where they distrust that institution is is just because there is this just greater distrust of institutions among Americans. Yes, I think so. So I would say I think that when you're seeing on display in these protests around the country and specifically in Michigan and here in Indiana, we had people protest on the governor's governor's lawn and things Maryland like that too. as well. And uh, and so what I think it is is it's a couple things. So I will I will totally agree with Asimov that a lot of it is sort of a, a, a distrust in institutions. It's a failure of our institutions to really advocate for critical thinking in science, right? But I would also, as a Marxist, make the argument that it's actually you have to look at what's going on materially with people's lives. So you have. 30 million people in this country are now unemployed. We've had the, the, the worst um, economic crisis since the Great Depression. This is worse than what happened 10 years ago. And we were, we're, we're barely a decade out of the, the recession of 2008, 2009. Um, and this happens again, and it happens much worse. So I do think there's a lot of people who in these protests are what I would call um, petty bourgeoisie. They're sort of middle class. They're small business owners. The, you know, the, the meme online is the Karens, right? They want to get mm-hmm. their hair cut. They want to get their nails done, this kind of shit. So there's that. But then there's also this other component of people who are genuinely afraid that they're that they are not being listened to and mm-hmm. that their concerns are not being heard. Because in this country, we really have like two major poles of political thought in this problem. One is the Republicans or sort of the radical conservatives who go, oh, this isn't a problem. Go and do whatever you want. Or somebody like uh, Lieutenant Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who's like, I would love for people to die in order for us to keep to keep the economy running. If people die, I don't care. Our economy is more important than people's lives. 
And then on the other side of it is sort of the neoliberal Democrats, the sort of milk toast nonsense that we've gotten from, you know, even mainstream figures, people like uh, former President Obama, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, uh, vice president, uh, presidential candidate Joe Biden, who are basically like, trust the science, trust the science. And that's what we do. We trust the science and we believe in the science and we're going to tell you that we believe in it. It's not enough to believe in science. It's not enough. What you actually have to do is not just believe in science, but actively do real political work in helping people in their lives, right? So giving giving most Americans a one-time check of $1,200 and basically telling them good luck, you know, like yeah. that's completely tone deaf. But then you can say, well, I believe in the science, you know, mm-hmm. and it sort of like absolves you of all responsibility for actually doing anything. You know, it's kind of like saying like, um, you know, I acknowledge that my car doesn't have any gas in it, but I'm not going to put in any in there. But me knowing that my car doesn't have any gas is good enough because you should because I'm telling the truth. It's not enough to tell the truth. You have to tell the truth and actually give people something. Yeah. That materially benefits them. So that's what I think a lot of it is. Is I do think it's a mix of that sort of anti-intellectualism mixed with people's real concerns about their diminishing material conditions in this, um, you know, super capitalism, hyper capitalism we live in in the United States. So it's it's a lot of diagnosing the problem, but no one's really prescribing many useful solutions. Yeah, I think so. I think mainstream political thought doesn't want to do it. Um, and part of it is because the Democratic Party and sort of the mainstream of the Democratic Party is sort of centrist neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. And that philosophy has been essentially dead for a decade. Yeah, it's It's been a zombie philosophy that just won't go away. And it's not actually giving people anything, right? So any talk of like tax credits or small business loans, all of this like petty nonsense, Mm -hmm. people don't want. We need to actually do real stuff like what they've done in other countries like Canada. Canada is giving every citizen in in their country $2,000 a month for the duration of the crisis, period. They also have universal health care. That should have been done. Mm -hmm. You have um, rent, you know, suspend rent, suspend mortgage payments. Suspend yeah. student loan payments, all of those. All of that should be done. Or go even further, just wipe out the debt. Student loan debt, wipe it out. You know, mortgage debt, wipe it out. Why is it that we have just given trillions of backdoor loans to financial institutions who've been over leveraged for a decade, but yet we can't bail out the American people? So mm-hmm. when average citizens keep seeing their government using their money to pay off their rich friends and not help them, that makes them pretty darned resentful and for a good reason. And then on the Republican side, you had a mix of denial months on this crisis. And then once they actually started to care, what did they actually do? Well, Trump did what he always does, which is that he talks a good populist game about, oh, I care about people. We'll make sure we have universal coverage. Well, what he's actually doing is doing the same hyper-capitalist neoliberal framework of let's bail out the bankers. Let's bail out the finance financiers. Let's give a $500 billion slush fund to, to Steven Mnuchin as treasury secretary to do with whatever. Trying to classify, like giving a bailout to the airlines who didn't need it, like what, or or bailing out cruise ships. Yeah. You know, I, I was listening to an economist named Mark Blythe recently. He's like, no one's going on a cruise ever again. Why are we bailing that out? It, that's a business that's just going to die, and it should die. Yeah. And so, I think the real thing that is that we need to take a note from the 
Paris protesters of 1968. Their slogan, and I can't, I don't know what it is in French, but what their slogan was when they were protesting um, in 1968 was, the economy is suffering, let it die. And I would say, I think that's true. I think we, this this uh, this sort of hyper-capitalist neoliberal order that we live under to under has to die. And a real meaningful social democracy or democratic socialist program actually needs to replace it. Because then you're going to start actually um, reacting and doing something for people's real concerns rather than just sort of mouthing platitudes while you give a bunch of money to the bankers, which is what everybody does. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, I was just reading uh, Neil Postman, the great educational theorist outside of NYU. And in the book, he he talks about this line of thought where when an organization becomes so concerned about the status quo and business as usual, it's not it's about how things are done, not whether they are actually done, which I, I think is pretty much par for the course right now with what's going on. It's about how things are getting done, not whether they are actually getting done. Absolutely. So this is, I think, a huge problem with our politics. And this is something I talked about with Jordan on his podcast, mm-hmm. Plato's Cave, is we need to give up on technocracy. And what I mean by that is this obsession with process and this obsession with technicalities and this, you know, those really don't matter. You know, those kinds of things will be solved. I think humans are smart enough to figure out a lot of technical details with plans and pro and programs. That's never been my issue. The big problem is, is that people get so obsessed with the process and the means of mm-hmm. how to do things rather than what the ends are. What do you actually seek to do? And in my opinion, most mainstream political parties and most mainstream politicians are obsessed with like, oh, we're going to do this process here. We're going to do this plan there. But they don't really have like a actual moral vision or theory of change or theory of social action. They don't actually talk about the big picture enough. Mm -hmm. And when they do, it's sort of mealy mouthed, boring, uh, lukewarm platitudes. Yeah. So on the democratic side, you either get this like obsession with process and technicalities and plans and someone like Elizabeth Warren, or you get this sort of empty uh, platitudinous nonsense of someone like a Pete Buttigieg, where it's all just, you know, Hallmark greeting card language while it's all, I'm still going to screw you and, and, and all your working class friends over actual politics. So what I, I you know, my thinking on the subject is when you're running for political office, you need to not tell me how you're going to do something. You need to tell me what you're going to do and yeah. why you're going to do it. What is the moral and political vision behind what you're doing? Because at the end of the day, if all you care about is process, mm-hmm. that's a recipe for failure politically. And like I said to Jordan, if you need any more evidence of how sort of technocratic neoliberalism is a failure, just look at how how horrible Elizabeth Warren's campaign was and how terrible she was as a candidate. Because I don't care how many plans you have. It doesn't matter what plans you have. If your vision of change isn't really rooted in power and in Mm -hmm. understanding power and how power works, then you're not going to get any of it done and it won't matter. Again, that that reminds me of more of what Neil Postman was saying. Uh, I, I think that this is a pervasive problem in many American organizational systems. And he argued that most of the greatest educational thinkers never personally describe themselves as educationists because no one likes a smart educationist because educationists are people that should subscribe to the process, not work outside 
of the process. Is that an example indicative of what, again, Asimov was arguing about this anti-intellectualism, or is that something else entirely? No, I think that's right. I do think that there's this sort of obsession with smartness that I think alienates um, intellectuals from everyone else. So I think a great example of this is the history of someone like Carl Sagan, you know, the great mm-hmm. science communicator, um, creator of Cosmos, brilliant scientist, um, did real groundbreaking work on the atmosphere of Venus, which is what his his main technical specifications were, um, wrote peer-reviewed articles, um, but also did a lot of popularizing work where he spent time with the public. And he paid a really dear price for doing that. He was never admitted to the American Academy of the Sciences because there was enough people in that organization who believed that his work in popularizing science to the public was detrimental to the the progress of science because they said all this time that he's wasting talking to the the unwashed masses is time he should have been spending actually doing real science work. Now, that's despite the fact that he actually was doing scientific yeah. work while, you know, he was an advisor to NASA. He worked in the Voyager program. Like I said, he had done peer-reviewed work on atmospheres on, on planets. So he did real scientific work, but he also did all this other stuff and he paid for it by not being admitted to the American Academy of, of Sciences. So I think that's an example of it where there's this like institutional uh, desire to cloister people, and and you're the elite group of people, and that we're going to have this elite group of people. Um, I think my profession of history has this problem, where this there's this sort of obsession with, um, with uh, credentials and this obsession with, um, you know, technicalities of and this and that and the other. And I've always and as a public historian, my view has always been: what is more effective, writing a peer-reviewed monograph that no one will read? Yeah. Or writing a three to five page short but insightful essay that you throw up on the internet that maybe a few thousand people will read, right? That's not technical. Now, that's not to say that technical work is important. It is. But I'm saying that like this obsession with the technical work at the expense of actually educating the public is a huge problem. Because at the end of the day, a lot of these people work for public institutions. They're yeah. funded by us, right? And so they should actually give a, they should actually care about what the public need like what the public could know. And I think this adds into that anti-intellectualism, mm-hmm. right? Because you have on the one end, you have the people, the sort of the, the average person who feels like, oh, I can't learn, I can't do this and that and the other. So why bother? And then you have this sort of specialist who says, oh, well, they can't learn anything. So why bother? They, they're both doing that. They both have this very sort of nihilistic view of people. And yeah. so I, I think that that's the huge issue. And that's why institutionally it's important for us to not not lose sight of, of good educational and scholarly work, but also just value public um, involvement and value um public education because at the end of the day that's what matters more than any technical work you're ever going to do no I, I totally agree i mean that's that's the impetus for muckraker media the the organization that jordan and i started and it, it occurred to me that when you look at the material and the information that is readily available to people it is way easier for someone to get online and find misinformation than it is to find actual insightful work. And I think that's a consequence of basically what you described happening to Carl Sagan, where you you don't want to be considered that popularizer of the work, because then for some reason, you're not, you're not a real member of that community. 
which is going to bring me we're going to come back to that later because I want to talk to you about uh, Ingersoll later on in the talk. But great. Be- before we get there, I, I think I want to make a slight pivot. But it's in keeping with with this line of thought we've established as a public historian. What do you see as the value in teaching history at the primary and secondary level? That is to say to elementary, middle, high school. What's the value in doing that? Because that that degree of history is is very far removed from the technical work we spoke about. But yet most Americans consider it to be worthwhile. Yeah. So I think it's incredibly valuable. And and for a few reasons. One, uh, I think it's important for people to learn history as a discipline. How does history work? Um, And the value of of historical thinking, right, of of putting the dots together to reviewing primary sources, Mm -hmm. to reviewing past scholarship, getting a sense of what other people have said about a topic you're working on. Um, And that's sort of in the secondary realm. But in the primary realm, realm, it's really important because it gets it really educates young kids, especially on critical thinking mm-hmm. and the ability to sort of um, make conclusions based on evidence and sort of learn about their story and learn about where they fit within the sort of the grand human story. So I think those are all important. And the other thing I think that's vitally important in the teaching of history, and it's why I went into history as a profession, is that I think it makes better citizens. I think that history and the learning learning history and creating history and and popularizing history leads to a more informed citizenry that it will make for healthier democracy. And I think it's like with any other discipline, whether it's the the hard sciences or mathematics um, or literature, all of these are ways in which we can educate our public to ensure a more healthy and functioning democracy. Um, And you know, so there's that sort of a very traditional view of it. Now, to put my radical hat on and talk about Marx for a mm-hmm. second, Marx wasn't just a politician and a, and a philosopher and an economist. He was also an historian par excellence. He wrote amazing works in history, including the Civil War in France and the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon, which is mm-hmm. probably one of his most important works. And Marx came up with the idea of historical – he didn't come up with it, but he sort of popularized the idea – sort of going with Hegel of historical materialism, the idea that um, history shifts and changes based on the forces of production. Yeah. And so it's important for us to acknowledge that history and the, the, the material conditions in which we live shape the history we're in. So if you're learning about history, let's say you're learning about 1850s England, okay? And you're learning about the fact that at that time, you're having the emergence of you know, capitalism is a major force and how that shapes society. So learning that historical material is important because then it gives you a sense of where you're at within the broader uh, within your broader society. And I think it just informs a better politics. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think you can really be political without without being historical. Okay. I think they're tied, I think they're very tied together. And so having a good sense of history will give you a good sense of politics because it will give you a sense of what is the human race done going all the way back to, you know, even the earliest days of the Fertile Crescent 11 to 12,000 years ago up to the emergence of Athenian democracy, the Roman Republic and the empire into the dark ages and so on. You can get a sense of these, you know, because I, I believe, as Marx did, that sort of there's a progression in history that is shaped by the forces of production. Yeah. And so I, I think that understanding those progressions mm-hmm. gives you a sense of how to actively think and talk about what the future might hold for us. 
Now, regardless of whether I agree or disagree with you, I, I want to just throw out the counterpoint. Yeah. Playing devil's advocate. Well, couldn't the argument be made that history is a highly specialized field? It doesn't possess much utility for the average citizen. Because I've heard this argument go around that the only people who get anything out of a, a primary or secondary level history class were future historians and history teachers. So I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that some of that's true. In the sense I'm not that, saying I do either. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yeah, of course. So I, I, I think that, in fact, if you really look at a lot of um, people who went into public life, a lot of them were greatly informed by history. If you think of somebody like John F. Kennedy who wrote an entire book on European history um, while he was at Harvard. It was a book called While, I think it was called While England Slept. And it was sort of about the interwar period. Um, and, or Teddy Roosevelt, um, who very much valued history and read history voraciously and wrote history of his own. Obviously, I've spoken about Marx. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, even with people today, a lot of people who went to, say, college or undergrad for history would eventually go on to become lawyers, or they would become economists, or they would become sociologists, um, or and so, and then and people who worked in, in in government. You know, I have a friend of mine who went into political science with a history degree. So history, I think, actually does matter quite a bit. And for like the sort of regular, you know history buff, or as I, at our institution, we like to call them citizen historians. Um, for the regular average person, I think history can be extremely valuable because it can, like I said earlier, it can give you a sense of where you are. And it actually gives you a lot of meaningful skills, which then can be used in other professions. So the ability to read material and to, and to evaluate material, the ability to evaluate evidence and weigh different pieces of evidence against one another, the ability to make conclusions, all those are very, very valuable. So teaching those skills early on actually helps people become uh, not just better historians, but better thinkers. And in our professions in sort of, you know, the brass tacks of, you know, how you pay the bills and make money, it's really good for people who are writers, journalists, lawyers, politicians, um, economists, sociologists, you know, all of those professions are greatly influenced by history. And so those are the, that's why I think like history very, very much matters and that we have to advocate for a more public understanding of history. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Give me some leash here because I'm, I'm going to descend into the particular a little bit. Okay. I want to look at the retention rates of students post high school graduation and and we find we find that those surveys of those students are not always not always encouraging. As as an example, and I think I think this example is indicative of the trend I'm trying to describe here is the American uh, Revolution Center tested I think it was 1,001 American adults on their knowledge of the American Revolution, right? And 83 percent of those adults earned failing grades. 83%. The Intercollegiate Studies Institute tested over 2,000 some Americans on political and historical topics. Over 70% earned failing grades. And uh, that, that that's just part and parcel of the bulk of the literature, which describes that Americans struggle with historical and political knowledge. And it's it's a real sticking point. Now, now does that mean we need does that mean we need this kind of system more than ever? We really need to teach history, or does that show that the, the that we need to reevaluate the system and it's all kind of hopeless? I guess. So uh, nothing is ever hopeless. As long as there's breath, there's life. Um, as long as there's life, there's hope. I think that was the the Prima Levi quote. 
Um, but yes, so what I would say is that when you're looking at retention rates, one of the problems I think that history has, and it's one you constantly hear, mm-hmm. um, and there's a book that came out in the late 90s. It's something I read in graduate school, and I think it's actually still pretty pretty um, important to think about today, and I would imagine the statistics are, are fairly similar, but it's a book called The Presence of the Past, and it's basically an overview of what do Americans know about history and why do they know it, and the authors um, uh, uh, who, who sort of talk about it, um, Rosenzweig and Thalen, they make the point that Americans sort of think of history in three ways. They sort of think of like, there's history, there's memory, and there's nostalgia. And those three things are actually very different, but they play a, play a well with each other, right? So this is the problem you have with historical knowledge in general. I think it's part of the reason why you see those high, those failure, uh, those high failure retention rates is that people don't really know the difference between history memory and nostalgia Mm -hmm. and with the revolutionary war for example a lot of people probably couldn't tell you like a certain specific date um or they couldn't even tell you the real story of paul revere right but they could tell you the sort of the the i think it's the longfellow poem right the you know the midnight ride of paul revere one of my land two of by sea like people Mm -hmm. remember that kind of stuff even though it has no bearing on on historical reality whatsoever and in fact revere was one of a few people who who actually informed people and he wouldn't have screamed the british are coming because that would have made any sense he would have said you know that's kind of like saying there we are here like it's us like we're british too like it wouldn't make any sense yeah so what they were sort of talking about was how uh it's important for us to really make a distinction between those three things and and the other thing i would say is and alongside and sort of talking about their book they talk about how um that one of the pr- the primary things that people said why don't you why didn't you like history in school that's just a very blanket question they would give and one of the things that people constantly said was it's just names and dates it's just names and dates it's just names and dates and that's the thing you hear all of the time and so here's what i've said to people about this over the years my theory of history doesn't actually come from an historian it comes from jimi hendrix now let me explain what i mean by that so there was an interview where the great guitarist, musician, Jimi Hendrix was talking about music and so, and he said something along the lines of, it's not the notes that matter, it's what happens in between them that does. And that's exactly what history is. It's not the names and the dates that really matter because you can look those up on Wikipedia. It's about what happens in between them that's important, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So even if you can't like remember that like you know Lexington and Concord happened in 1775 and then you know the Declaration of Independence was actually finalized on July 2nd 1776 but didn't get out to the to the colonies until July 4th like people don't need to know all that little stuff what they need to know is the big picture which is that the United States was a colonial power which had been constantly overtaxed and burned by the by by England because England was constantly at war with France and needed the revenue to keep fighting the French in its in its wars with one another and the United States was like we don't need this anymore why are we you know and they made the argument that we need to uh get rid of our colonial masters in an effort to build a more representative government for our interests now those interests weren't just life liberty and the pursuit of happiness it was also slaves right because england even by 1776 was starting the emergence of what would become the abolitionist movement and the emergence away from the slave trade and slavery in general Mm 
And had the United States stayed as colonies with England well into the 19th century, uh, slavery probably would have ended a lot earlier in America and the Civil War may never have happened, right? So it's those counterfactuals and those big sort of broad things that we can sort of big conclusions that we can draw from history that have relevance to us today that we need to articulate a little bit better. Because like I said, those names and dates, people, if people don't remember every little date or name, like that's not the end of the world. I can't even do that. Mm -hmm. But what's more important is that you know, like, why was the Revolutionary War important? What did it do for global global politics at the time? What was its influence on Europe, right? So then you can talk about how like the American Revolution was an influence on the French Revolution that happened in 1789. And the French Revolution took the American Revolution farther than that one went. So talking about how it was all part of a larger theme of development. When you start when you start talking about the big picture, as Jimi Hendrix would say, when you start talking yeah. about what's going on in between the notes, that's where the real history is. And so getting people to understand those broad points is a way of educating people in history without having to inundate them with with constant names and dates. And, and and let's be clear, I, I definitely would agree with most of what you said there. And I think this kind of summative assessment based on historical facts, names and dates is, is not really indicative of what a good education would look like, a successful education would look like. And I, I think I, I there's this book by uh, A.N. Whitehead, and I, I think he would generally agree with what you said there, that, that for most of human history, the education system has assumed that each generation would live roughly in relatively the same conditions as the one that came before it. And they would live in the same kind of society as the one that came before it. Thus, they're educated in such a way that would transmit those ideas that were important to that to that predecessor. So he argues that this is the first time in human history, this being in the 19, um, 20, early, early 1900s, and then this is the first time in human history that that isn't true, that the degree of change has changed so much that what was historical record 10 years ago may very well be seriously questioned today. That, And then Neil Postman takes that a little bit further and says that at best, if you still were to remember everything you learned in school, you'd be a walking encyclopedia of outdated information. That it isn't so much about the specific names and dates, that it is about the, the broader context and learning and mastering those skills that go into the toolbox of a good historian, the critical thinking skills, the critical reading, the critical writing, and so on and so forth. So how can we how can we as a society reconcile that? Because our current education system still favors the names and the dates and the rote memorization and summative assessment that isn't indicative of real learning. Because in my opinion, learning and education are two completely different things. There's there's education and then and then there's and then there's learning. Learning is the is something that happens. It's very insular. It happens by yourself. It's something that you do. You work at your own time, your own pace, and that's learning. And education is more in tune with like a system. So that that was a long and winding way of asking how can we reconcile this this quote from Whitehead with our current system today. So I think it's great that he says that. Um, it's it's interesting the parallels between what Whitehead is saying there and what we're sort of the historical moment we're living through now. There's a book that came out in the early '90s called um, the, uh, "The End of History and the Last Man" by Francis Fukuyama. It's very very important, and his argument was that with the collapse of the Cold with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, liberal democracy has won. 
and we've reached what he called the end of history. So, and in that he's sort of he's sort of um, echoing Hegel, the philosopher Hegel, who sort of believed in again, like Marx, historical materialism. We would enter different phases, and there would be sort of historical progress, mm-hmm. and then we would hit sort of hit an end. And Fukuyama made the argument that we're at the end of that period. Like you know, there is no alternative other than the sort of liberal democratic um, uh, order that we've established post Cold War. What we're seeing right now around the globe, from the collapse of capitalism due to coronavirus to widespread protests, today is May Day, today is the International Workers' Day. Um, you're seeing widespread protests at, at companies like Amazon, Target, Shipped, and Whole Foods, um, is that history is not over, that actually history's back. And in some ways, it never left. And so what I would say is that what we need to do with our society is, in my opinion, move away from the neoliberal order. And one of the ways that we do that is through our educational system. Our educational system is very much based on this sort of like technocratic, merit-based, fill-in-the-boxes, hit the numbers, the numbers determine the revenue that you get kind of system, right? How Very, things are done, not how web, things are done. done. Yeah. How things are done rather than what what is actually being done. And uh, the philosopher uh, Slavoj Žižek sort of calls this market Stalinism, where it's intensely bureaucratic. It's obsessed with metrics, even though it doesn't really matter what you're measuring because it's all kind of nonsense anyway. And you're not actually really doing anything. So one of the ways we do that is really moving to different models of education. Um, And so maybe we need to move to a more of a Montessori model where there's less of an emphasis on tests. There's less of an emphasis on filling in the blanks and and this and that and the other and more focused on real sort of experiential learning. So maybe even going a little bit back to somebody like John Dewey, who's who's an influence of mine, democracy and education, Um, you know, and moving away from this sort of very regimented model. The other thing I I would say is just nationalize the education system in the United States. We have we have 50 states, and within 50 states, you have X amount of counties. Here in Indiana, we have 92 counties. Within that, you have multiple different school districts. The federal Department of Education should just be a more unified body. We should not have, um, you know, either we should just have like a state education in the sense that like the state of Indiana manages all of the schools and not all these like itty bitty little. Um, uh, school corporations which are dependent upon um, um, uh, property taxes, which is a horrible system to begin with, right? Gross like ha- inequalities. Like having, having an education system based on property taxes is disgusting. Um because it, you're right. And the thing is, like, the whole no child left behind thing that happened 15 years ago with Bush, what ended up happening was that the schools that were already doing better just got more money and the schools that were crap kept being crap and they got less money. So many so, children left behind. Yeah, many, many children left behind. Um, who wasn't left behind, right? And then you had – so, and then that was sort of changed under the Obama era. Um, and so – we're seeing in this country just an assault on public education where we're seeing public tax dollars going towards charter schools and parochial schools, which should never get that money to begin with. If you want to send your kid to a private school, that's fine. Don't use public money to do it because at the end of the day, you're exacerbating the inequality in the society by doing that. So I would advocate for a federal education system that 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 funds the system federally through 
um, through income taxes and through and through uh, payroll taxes, just like we do our national programs like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid and the military. And so, yes, I, I think we just need to move to a more federal model that uh, does away with a lot of the bureaucratic nonsense of all these different states trying to compete with one another. But at the same time, and here's what's very important, is to not lose sight of localism and some of the benefits of federalism, where, yes, I think it would be better if we had a more robustly federally funded education system, but that should not be at the expense of schools and local districts being able to set more of their own rules and giving them a little bit more leeway because you're not tying so much of the funding to performance. So those are kind of things. I mean, I think standardized testing is a disaster. Yeah. We should do away with that kind of crap um, and just really make an honest effort towards uniform education in the country. Um, I'm not an expert in this, yeah. but these are just sort of my general thoughts. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm glad you actually mentioned the the last point you did because I was going to press you on the if we if we make a federal a state education system, couldn't that breed inefficiencies with so much of the funding being tied to performance, right? They want to make sure their dollars are being well spent and so on and so forth. I would I would argue that the the goal of the education system would have to be combating entropy, societal entropy, right? Uh, to train individuals to question conventional assumptions and standard practices, thereby making it impossible to have a system in which those kind of, you know, bureaucratic activities would happen. And we're definitely not doing that. I would, no. I would say we, we are nowhere, we're nowhere near that. And no, we're not. And again, I think that's because we are so committed to this model of, of, you know, means over ends that, you know, that we're so obsessed with the, the, the how that we're not really thinking about the why. And I, I so think I, that's that's really par for the course. Um, Marshall McLuhan, he was this great media theorist. He he always put it as the medium is the message. That was his big that was his big point. And I think that a microcosm of that is our current education system. It's all about the how are you doing this right? Just as our bureaucracy is obsessed with that, just as our society is largely accept, uh, obsessed with the how, the processes. So it's, it's hard to break out of that because the system is so closely tied to our current systems of doing things over the whole of society, you know, um, our political realm with how things are being done. Are you accepting the PAC money to be able to run your campaign and then answering to those donors later once you're in office so then you can get reelected and so on and so on and so forth? But, so I, I guess I want to take an even further pivot over. I, I, I think all of these are still in line with our line of thought, but they might off the top, you know, off the bat seem a little unrelated. You've, you've often cited essentialism, the disciplined pursuit of less as like a, a book that was a major turning point in, in your life. Do you think the central idea of essentialism, as you found in that book, has infiltrated your thoughts on education, has perhaps informed the way you think about education. Now, I, I, saying that, I completely understand that the educational philosophy of essentialism is different than the type of essentialism that would guide one's life, but I think there's a cross-pollination of the similarities between the two. For example, essentialism in education, in a few words, is the idea that only the traditional basic subject should be taught, but taught thoroughly, which is this idea of the this is a classic idea, less but better, right? You you do less but better, right? You only teach literacy and numeracy, but you do it better than you were, and therefore it has more value. Or maybe 
all of these humanity subjects like literature and history would be considered tertiary or unimportant. So instead of teaching them explicitly, you teach them implicitly within essential within this essentialist framework of teaching literacy and numeracy. So I guess to expand on that, could you put into words for the audience what exactly essentialism means to you so that we they know the framework that we'll be playing in going forward? Sure. So you 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 cited the great quote from Dieter Rams, who worked for Braun, the the Vinaigre Bessa, you know, less but better. Um, I guess I've never really thought about it that way. I mean, essentialism for me is more of a personal thing. It was more mm-hmm. about sort of living my own life personally. Yeah. But I would say, in terms of thinking about education, in terms of like just doing the essentials, that's where I would disagree because I don't think that teaching just the essentials of you know reading, writing, arithmetic, as they used to yeah. say in the old days um, is good enough. I think that actually having an active um, uh, programs that stimulate uh, uh, students in other ways. So I'm a very strong proponent of the arts and humanities. Um, I have been my entire life. Um, uh, I'm an amateur musician. I was in music for very many, many years and considered going to school for music. Um, Then eventually went into history, which is another form of the humanities. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the humanities are incredibly important. And I think this obsession with STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, in math that sort of permeates our culture is another symptom of sort of the the neoliberal rot in our political culture and our social culture of just everybody's so obsessed with numbers. Um, And I think that's really detrimental to um, to our to our society and to our democracy. So to me, what would be essential in education is that we need to really actively work on what's essential for children, which is and yeah. for students and, and which is giving them a quality, well-rounded education while simultaneously not exploding administrative costs mm-hmm. and in actively giving them education that will be beneficial to them. So I think that having a very robustly funded uh, uh, um, music program is important, a theater program. I was involved in music and theater in school. Um, Having a really robust uh, school lunch program. I don't think for for school lunch if they're going to public school. I think they should just get it. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't think they should have to pay for it. Indiana is one of the few states in the country that actually charges kids for their books when they're in, in elementary and, and in uh, grade school. Um, I had to pay for my books when I was in school. They shouldn't have to do that either. Wow. Um, uh, I think we're like one of two states that do that now. Most of that's phased out. Yeah. Um, but I think what I would say in terms of doing less but better, it's not actually teaching less subjects, but it's getting rid of a lot of the waste within the educational system, which to me is the administration. There's so much administration and especially in college and in and in the universities and colleges there is just astronomical amounts of unnecessary administration i'm a graduate of indiana university i can tell you firsthand i went to two two satellite campuses of indiana university one in kokomo indiana one in indianapolis and i can tell you they have way too much administration and the people are paid too much it's 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 ridiculous because at the end of the day all that money that's going towards, you know, a six-figure salary for someone, a high six-figure salary of like a chancellor or a president, is not going towards doing novel research. It's not going towards the faculty. It's not going towards the students. So I think that's what really needs to happen. And what is getting essential is getting those resources back towards the actual goal of educating children and students on a wide range of subjects rather than constantly wasting our resources on bureaucracy 
because it's just so damned bureaucratized mm-hmm. and that that has to end no I, I i totally agree with you and especially on the idea that what we need to teach what would be beneficial to the students and and this is where i guess it's actually fitting that you and I are talking, so I'll, I'll put on my radical hat where I totally think that most subjects from schools should be eliminated and we should not teach based solely on subjects, but there should be this constant cross-pollination of all of these fields of knowledge informing one another because the skills are so transferable that outside of your basic literacy and numeracy, all of the other things taught in school should really not be tied to subjects, but instead they should be teaching – like I don't know why I'm learning um, – specifically teaching taking a french literature course when i could be taking in high school this is i'm I'm speaking specifically about primary and secondary school when i could be taking a class entitled critical thinking and perhaps the teacher is very passionate about french literature and perhaps the students are very interested in it and then that's where that course goes Mm -hmm. that's the that's the framework you're playing in but it's more about the skill i i think totally schools should adopt the inquiry method as their main means of teaching it should not be the teacher as the sole dispenser of knowledge but really the facilitator of learning because you could only learn based on what you already know and you have to meet the students where they're at and i also think this is a lot of where colleges are failing or um, academics really anyone that is working in an intellectual field is they're not really there's i don't i don't, I don't see a great attempt to meet the people where they are it's a lot of you have to come to us and why people are not up there proselytizing the the wonderful heights of intellectual reasoning, but there's people proselytizing, not getting a vaccine or whatnot, you know, mm-hmm. because it gives you autism. It, it's a, this very, it's a system where it's easier to get your hands on misinformation than it is on useful information. And our education system does not teach students how to differentiate the two. Yeah. And that's where I think the value of history is critical because history will teach you that there's so much bunk in history, mm-hmm. you know, that's just nonsense um, that we can use critical thinking to to change that from. I would say a big part of the problem in America and I think around the world, too, but especially in the United States, is that we have this sort of slavish devotion to the concept of meritocracy Yeah, that, yeah. you know, if you work hard and you play by the rules that you'll succeed and much and i'm sorry but like much like the easter bunny and the tooth fairy that is a that's a bedtime story people tell themselves to feel mm-hmm. better it's not true meritocracy doesn't really work in the united states it works for very very few people and the people that do who works for look like me they're white and they're male and that's mm-hmm. usually who it works for right so in the united states we sort of whole hog bought the idea of meritocracy, neglecting the fact that the concept itself came from a British author who wrote a satirical book where he basically said that meritocracy was a farce and used the concept to, to describe a society like a, a sort of Swiftian nightmare mm-hmm. where uh, you know people would sort of get ahead based on the credentials they have. That's a huge problem in America. In, in, our, in the United States, this obsession with degrees and credentials is why our educational system sucks so hard. It's because all people care about is, can I get the degree? If I get the little note and, and I have the note that I need, then I can mm-hmm. get where I want to get, right? And I'm saying this as someone who, you know, I, you know, I graduated in like, the top 15 or 15% of my high school class. I have two college degrees, you know, like I am a beneficiary of the meritocracy, but I can tell you that 
so much of it is total nonsense, right? Yeah. You know, a lot of it is signaling at this point. So much of it is just, it's performative. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would say about what's wrong with American society right now in general. Everything is performative. Our politics are performative. Our education system is performative. None of it's actually rooted in people's real needs and in people's real desires. It's all about, do I say the right thing? Do I have the right credential? Am I doing the right thing? It's all about the appearance of success rather than actually being successful. Yeah. And that, I think, really has to change. And that's not something you can do overnight. That's a cultural shift that has to happen. Mm -hmm. And to me, that happens when we embrace a more broader democratic politics. Mm -hmm. When we get away from neoliberalism, we get away from meritocracy, and we start actually advocating for a democratic society where there's a leveling of of income, there's a leveling of wealth, there's a leveling of, of access. Like that's when people society when that's when stuff can really start to change because otherwise we are so mired in this idea that um, you know because then it breeds this idea that you know uh, you know Bill Gates is worth you know hundred billion dollars and he earned that all himself no he didn't like or Jeff Bezos is worth one hundred fifty billion dollars and he earned all that no he didn't like these people like they benefited from a system that they knew how to game right like bill yeah. gates's mom sat on the board of ibm that's how he got that contract like jeff bezos got a loan from his dad elon musk got ben- benefited from the fact that his his family had it had it like a had like a, a a jewelry like a like a, a like a, a diamond mine or something like that in south mm-hmm. africa these people like Warren Buffett's dad was a very influential politician. Like it, this idea that these people are self-made, like that's nonsense. And it goes to show you that meritocracy is a farce. And so we should replace meritocracy with democracy. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. And I, I think a lot of um, what you're saying, I think you might find this this book pretty interesting. Have you read uh, The Case Against Education, the subtitle, uh, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money? No. I think you would. Uh, I think you would find it pretty interesting. As by this um, economist Brian Kaplan. Oh, okay. I, I, I think you'd, I think you'd get a lot out of it, but I, I don't want to know that name oh, before. He's. I think he's written about voting. I think he's, um, he's. He's done a lot of work on voting and like sort of how voting works. Um, Brian Kaplan. Yeah, another one of his books. What is it? The. What do we have? The myth of the rational voter. Rational voter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The myth of the rational voter. There's a whole school of those guys. Him and Jason Brennan too have written about this, but. Mm-hmm. That's what I know him from. But yeah, I'll have to check that out. Um, yeah. So I, I don't I don't want to eat up too much more of your time. So interestingly enough, you you and I only became aware of each other through uh, Dirty History, our in-house Renaissance man Woodrow Cower. He did a portrait of Robert Green Ingersoll for you. And yes. Ingersoll seems to be an interesting figure, one that I think I think fits in to the overarching theme I've tried to establish on Dirty History and the theme that I think we've established in this talk with one another. Uh, could you describe for the audience who may not be aware of him, his, his contribution to American thought? I know you have written at large about this. Um, well, I guess I guess we can try this. You have a quote. Of Ingersoll's on your website, justinclark.org, which I, I linked in the show notes for Thank anyone you. who wants to go check it out. And your uh, 
blog article on Isaac Asimov is there as well. So if anyone wants to check out all these materials we've been referencing, they're on your website. And the quote runs like this. When I became convinced that the universe is natural, that all the ghosts and gods are myths, they're entered in my brain, into my soul, and every drop of my blood, the sense, the feeling, the joy of freedom, the walls of my prison crumbled and fell, the dungeon was flooded with light, and all the bolts and bars and manacles became dust. Reading that, he definitely comes across as like a, a Christopher Hitchens type, which I think you've and you and I have conversations in which you've kind of expared, um, compared him to that type of individual. But I suppose, well, actually, I suppose with Ingersoll predating Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens is more of a Robert Greene Ingersoll type. But is he essentially just a skeptic of Christianity or where does he fit into the larger, larger um, movement of American thought? Sure. So Robert Greene Ingersoll um, lived sort of through the bulk of the 19th century. He was born in 1833, died in 1899. And in his time, he was known as the great agnostic. That was sort of his nickname. And um, what he did was he was a lawyer. Um, He was a veteran of the Civil War. He fought in the Battle of Shiloh. Um, He was also a prisoner of war and survived. and he was a sort of politician, and he came to sort of national renown through his political work. Um, he had he had advocated for James G. Blaine, who was an, a presidential candidate, and and uh, that's sort of how he got to national prominence. And he used his sort of political networking and his lawyer networking to sort of do this side business of being a professional skeptic and and critic of religion. He was critical of all religions, but specifically Christianity, because Christianity is the culture in which we're in here in the United States. And he sort of um, his father was a um, Presbyterian minister, mm-hmm. but of sort of a radical bent. You know, he was born and his early years were what was called the burned over district in New York, which is a real hotbed of sort of radicals and abolitionists and suffragists. You know, mm-hmm. this is the area of Seneca Falls and and uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Frederick Douglass and all this. So he grew up in, in sort of that environment and he was in many ways, the way I would sort of talk about him is that he was a great popularizer of ideas. He wasn't somebody who was terribly like original, like that was never like he, you know, he didn't write like original philosophy or anything like that. But what he was very good at was taking all of this different stuff he he knew, whether it was philosophy, history, sociology, you know, the, you know, what would become sociology, um, religion, theology, and all of this politics and put it sort of all together in in a way that was eloquent but but accessible to people. So even the people who disagreed with him um, were very moved by his work. And people with thousands would come to see him give speeches, even if they disagreed with him. Um, but and where I think he was very different than sort of the modern set of atheists today is that at the end of the day, as the quote you read sort of personifies, and that quote comes from um, his his uh, essay, Why I, um, Why I Am an Agnostic, um, is uh, this emphasis on hope. Um, Ingersoll was a very hopeful man, and his philosophy was very hopeful. He believed that sort of science and critical thinking and technology and humanism, you know, what would become humanism in the 20th century, were forces for good in the world, and that they could be harnessed to um, make people's lives better and to improve the the conditions of, of, of individuals and the conditions of society. So there was this very strong emphasis on hope and this very strong emphasis on progress, which is, I think, something 
something that a lot of modern atheism doesn't really have. It tends to be, in my opinion, it tends to be fairly reactionary and sort of uh, nihilistic. It doesn't have sort of hopeful tone. Um, and even when it does, it tends to do it in a way that is, I think, alienating to people. So, you know, Ingersoll was this titan of thought who... Um, and in my thesis, I called him, you know, a public intellectual, which is what he was, mm -hmm. um, and really used the public and the bully pulpit of the public discourse to advocate for secularism and free thought um, and was a major player in that period. You know, the, the from the end of the Civil War up until about World War One is called yeah. in America the golden age of free thought. Um, and he was this sort of central pivotal figure of that period. Um, and he's the most emblematic figure of that period. Um, and the only other person who could get a speaking crowd in the way he did and made as much money public speaking as him was Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. Mark Twain was the only one. It was yeah. like him. It was Twain and Ingersoll. They were the most popular public speakers in America um, at the end of the 19th century. So uh, Robert Ingersoll is, I think, a great example for today. And I think he's someone that people should should look at because, um, you know, he's uh, I think he's a, a great hero for people who believe in critical thinking and skepticism and and humanism. Which is exactly in line with, I think, the theme we themes we've been discussing today. Now, did was there any kind of uh, controversy in you calling him a public intellectual, while he may be considered by many to be a popularizer of ideas and not having really any of his his own, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, so I, in my thesis, I sort of overturn a recurring theme that happened in a lot of uh, literature in the in the last 20, 30 years about Ingersoll. Um, particularly, there's this independent scholar named S.T. Yoshi who uh, wrote a book compiling all of the great you know, free thinkers of history. And he didn't include Ingersoll. And in the introduction to the book, he basically says, I didn't include Ingersoll because he's not important enough. Um, he's not original enough. He's not important enough. He's not an intellectual. And I, I think that's totally wrong. I think that's absolutely nonsense. Um, and so what I'm trying to make an emphasis on is that he was a public intellectual, that what he was doing was engaging American citizens in a very rich and and stimulating dialogue in the role of faith and 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 skepticism in the public square in the public square in the public sphere and so uh i think you know while some might see me calling him a public intellectual is controversial i think that i lay out enough in my research on him uh, to actually make the point that no, he actually was one, and I'm not the only one who says that. I mean, Susan Jacoby, um, the uh, the journalist and intellectual historian, wrote a great book about him as well. Um, that was sort of the impetus for me mm -hmm. doing my work on him, and she makes the same argument. And so I'm I'm following her and her conclusions, and I'm sort of uh, developing my own. But yes, I do think he's a public intellectual, and I think yeah. people who don't think so are wrong. And as a popularizer of ideas, as someone who meets the public where they're at. I think what he would be doing is considered the most important task of what a public intellectual should be. And I, maybe that's a recurring theme of these of these popularizers of ideas getting getting shafted ultimately. I mean, we talked about Carl Sagan being left out of the Academy of Sciences. Really, I would say that an, an Ingersoll type would be the ideal figure to combat anti-intellectualism in America. 
they would be the figure to do it, not someone who is cloistered in the ivory tower, who writes only technical works. The, the, those, are the, those are not the kind of people who would combat the, the slew of misinformation readily available to someone or out there actively fighting for, you know, free thought and critical thinking. So, yeah, as, as you were talking, I think I, I'm, I may have thought of a, a title for this podcast and I want you to let me know what you think. So it's, it's, it's episode 45. I guess we would probably entitle this American anti-intellectualism. Subtitle would have to be probably skeptics, popularizers, and I need a third. I need a third type. Socialists. Radicals. Oh, socialists. Skeptics, popularizers, and socialists. Yes. We talked. We spent a good chunk of the first third talking about socialism. So yeah. There we have it. Well, yeah. Thanks again for coming on. I really enjoyed this. Oh, you're very welcome. It was an immense pleasure. I'm always happy to. Well. Justin Clark, everyone, you can find out more. You could read his blog. He has all kinds of great stuff up on his website, justinclark.org. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this has been Dirty History.